This week's podcast is called The Totalitarian Moment, Europe from the 30s to 50s, and was recorded at last month's Institute of Ideas Academy. The lecturer is Bruno Waterfield. Some of what I've, well, quite a bit of what I'll be doing will overlap with uh, something I did about five years ago, which was more looking at uh, fascism and then touching on totalitarianism. So I'm now going to be talking about totalitarianism and as much about Stalinism. I think first it's worth uh, thinking about what the difference is between the totalitarian moment or impulse and, if you like, straightforward uh, dictatorship or, or or authoritarianism. While a dictatorship restricts or crushes freedom and autonomy, it does not traditionally seek to abolish its basis in the autonomous individual and various sort of differentiation in society rising from that on the whole. The totalitarian moment or impulse that I'm going to be talking about seeks to change the nature of man's soul, if you like, in the sense of crushing or abolishing the basis for autonomy itself. So the mission of a totalitarian um, is to eliminate the role uh, of freedom by assaulting uh, assaulting the boundaries, um, the exercise of self-interest, the premise of autonomy, and the differentiation of individuals, classes or nations from the mass. In the 1930s, it emerged as the driving force in Nazi Germany, emulating and outstripping Stalinism, um, which had adopted the mission in Stalin's attempts to transform the Bolshevik party in Soviet state um, with new dynamics that could dissolve an already fragile order to replace it with something new. By doing so, he imbued the Soviet Union with a new energy, a new motion that was taken up by the Nazis um, as an organising uh, model um, that, unlike in Russia, was harnessed to one of the world's most powerful economies um, and modern states, um, unleashing unprecedented uh, destruction and, and horror in, in the Holocaust, which, has, which I'm not going to talk about, but we've talked about before, the difference in the character between the, the Holocaust and, let's say, the, the people who died during collectivisation in the Soviet Union, etc. I'm going to look at some of those dynamics and attempts to break down autonomous life and occasionally... I'm going to lean, and I don't make any apology for it, on on literature because it really is literature which frequently came into direct conflict with the totalitarian moment and I think often best expresses the essence um, of the impulse because actually, curiously, there are very few theorists of totalitarianism, but that becomes apparent a bit later on. So first I want to set the scene in history, um, in the wider moment and the crisis um, in the identity of the individual and society that followed the First World War um, in Western Europe, with a turning away from liberalism and democracy that led to a profound crisis of authority and the state providing a fertile soil for the germ of a totalitarian idea to germinate. The germ of the totalitarian idea is already very much present in elite thinking of the intelligentsia and look at John Kerry's intellectuals and the masses to to sort of prove that, if you like. Um, So first I'll look at the the West and the rise, or Europe, and the West and the rise of fascism and Nazism, which, reflecting uh, Germany's importance, quickly dominated 
Um, secondly, in the Soviet Union, I'll look at the bureaucratic and authoritarian generation of a re- uh, degeneration of a revolution and the rise of Stalin, but again, very briefly. It's difficult to understate the profound disorientation, the loss of the sense of self, the sense of disorder and crisis, with a severing between the links between past, present and future that followed the Great War, and the febrile sense that new energies and antagonisms and destructive potential, positive potential, had been um, unleashed. And D.H. Lawrence's novel, Lady Chatterley's Lover, is notable not just for its pornography, but in terms of exploring the sort of psychological and social effects um, of the war and the despair of what he describes um, in that novel as um, an essentially tragic um, age. So the novel opens with the cataclysm has happened, we are among the ruins, we start to build up new little habitats to have new little hopes. It is rather hard work. There is now no smooth road into the future, but we go round or scramble over the obstacles. We have got to live no matter how many skies um, have fallen. So combined with a, a sense of trauma, there is this re-evaluation and lowering um, of expectations and a rethinking of the, basic, uh, the basis of the liberal idea that saw politics and representative parliamentary government as resulting or arising from the rational playing out of interests um, pursued by uh, autonomous individuals allied with others in classes or differentiated groups uh, based on their um, interests and self-interest. The 1920s framed a decade that would be defined by a European movement against uh, democracy, one that was often heroically uh, resisted, and it's, it's, it's very important to know that actually the 30s ended in defeat, but in many ways it was an optimistic decade, which has a lot to, <clears throat> a lot to be said for it in terms of music uh, and literature, the best literature of the 20th century, I think. Uh, so there was a lot of potential there as well. So we tend to, to, to view the 1930s as being uh, this inevitable uh, defeat. But anyway, um, so there was this European movement against democracy or towards dictatorship or anti-democratic rule based on new ideas of society that could no longer rely on tradition which was totally wounded in the war, and assumed new motivations for society and individuals that were seen as essentially irrational. Robert O. Paxton, the historian of uh, of fascism, and I think the best in the game, noted that it was a liberal Europe itself that had violated all its own principles by letting itself be swept into the barbarity of a long war, which it was then incapable of. Of managing, if you look at the collapse of, of social, the crisis of social democracy following the, the First World War, and when I'm talking about liberal, I think I mean I mean the social democrat essentially. Contrary to myth, fascists never seized power, all won uh, won power via democratic elections. Fascists and the Nazis um, entered into highly pragmatic alliances with sections of existing state elites um, in the disorder and chaos, including acute political conflict. There was a need for disorientated state elites to build uh, new relationships with society, to move away from the idea of self-determined interests, liberalism, to a new uh, politics of mass, which, again, more of which later. So was it inevitable? Um, Many pessimistic readings of the period imply it was. That tends to be how we view the 1930s. Paxton 
in fact, argues um, that it was not. Um, he says there was nothing inevitable about the arrival of Mussolini and Hitler in office and, again, locates the problem in a crisis of uh, liberalism and the rejection by conservatives and the right of, of the democratic movement. So the attachment to democracy, its basis in freedom and a self-determined realm of interests, often weak, broke down before fascism or Nazism, heralding a new order. Profound disenchantment with a democracy that linked the realm of political, as the clash of interests, to representative institutions that saw themselves as being able to represent the national or the public interest is illustrated by many liberal uh, thinkers of the period. And I just do, do, do this quote, and I, I, I use it from time to time. Joseph Schumpeter in his very influential 1942 book, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, and he, he advocated techni- te- technocracy to save the West, but even he identifies this problem with the autonomous individual, even though he's trying to defend uh, democracy and, the, and social democracy. We remain under the practical necessity of attributing to the individual independence and rational quality that is altogether unrealistic, he wrote. It must not be forgotten that the phenomena of crowd psychology are by no means confined to mobs rioting in the narrow streets of a Latin town. Every parliament displays, in however mild a form, some of those features, in particular a reduced en- a level of responsibility, a lower level of energy of thought, and greater sensitiveness to non-logical influences. So friends like that who need enemies. The door was open to totalitarians who sought to recast society on the premise that the autonomous, rational individual is a myth, a dangerous myth, a construct that needed to be rebuilt on a more realist uh, basis, reflecting the irrational, lower energy of thought and greater sensitiveness of non-logical influences. Um, And as Schumpeter illustrates... Um, the rationale of this tendency was very dominant in elite uh, and intellectual thought. In Russia, also ravaged by war, civil war, disorder and social background uh, breakdown, the Soviet Revolution, an initially progressive and democratic event, struggled to survive, uh, degenerating within five years. So the Bolsheviks had taken power in a huge territory where a despotic and centralised Tsarist bureaucracy governed a fairly structureless uh, population, mainly of landless peasants, um, a society that a a very weak, um, embryonic urban capitalist class had not yet organised. The leadership of a small working class was also decimated in the civil war that followed the the revolution, and the early democratic principles of the Bolsheviks were rapidly subsumed to expediency the struggle to survive and the fusing of the revolutionary party with elements of the existing state bureaucracy. And one of the interesting aspects of this moment was Lenin's attempts to introduce differentiations in, into a Soviet society in terms of in trying to create new classes, um, trying to discover um, new uh, nations. So Arendt notes he was more frightened by the absence of social and other structure than by the possible development of centrifugal tendencies in the newly emancipated nationalities or even the growth of a new bourgeoisie out of a newly established uh, middle um, and uh, peasant classes. So even though Lenin and many in the Bolshevik leadership failed to resist the merging of supreme state power with the party bureaucracy, this development, um, the rise of tyranny and dictatorship, a revolutionary dictatorship, would not have necessarily um, led to totalitarianism. That wasn't a given 
Um, that was to come with Stalin. Um, so, in fact, a new state class or caste added to the developing social stratification in, in Russia alongside a politically diminished and present working class peasantry and new middle class out of the, the, the new economic uh, policy um, could have stabilised a revolutionary um, dictatorship. So Stalin's rise to power sought to change the basis of that embryonic new form of class system or, or Soviet society or the system of Soviet national republics by tearing down the differentiation the nations and classes Lenin um, had tried um, to uh, cohere. So first he cemented the Bolshevik control of power by dissolving uh, the Soviets. Uh, then he moved to liquidate classes um, with the most striking and brutal development being the expropriation of the kulaks, the rich peasants, forced collectivization of agriculture using artificial famine and deportations as a weapon, killing millions. The, what remained of the, of, of, of the working class uh, suffered innovations such as the Stakhanov system to break up class consciousness. The mil- labour was militarised and there was a for- formations of new aristocracy um, in the workplace and the party penetrated and the workplace uh, too. And then finally for Stalin, from 36 to 38, he instigated this new internal regime of purges and terror within the Bolsheviks, sweeping out, exiling, imprisoning or executing 50% um, of, 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 of the party. So again, millions um, of people. And this is interesting because none of these amazing developments that, that Stalin um, unleashed was really motivated by any traditional sort of authoritarian or dictatorial um, impulse because none of these social strata that he liquidated were actually hostile um, to um, the regime. So it's it's also very important to note that Stalinism prepared its ground by exterminating, uh, literally exterminating, a layer of individuals, revolutionaries and some really, truly outstanding people who'd been forged in the life of arguing, testing, building relationships of class politics leading to the high-level of historical consciousness that have created the Russian Revolution. So he was, of course, killing the men and women in an international movement who could have mounted a, a challenge to Hitler and fascism, tipping the balance in Germany, arguably, um, and certainly uh, in Spain, where, where Stalin was the grave digger uh, of democracy along, alongside Franco. So having set the scene, I, w- I just want to look at some of the key features of a totalitarian assault on, on, uh, on freedom and an order built on freedom, democracy, which came through the transformation into classes of self-determined interests rooted in the autonomous uh, individual, transformed into mass, an undifferentiated, structureless, atomized, lonely multitude of, uh, of isolated people. And, and, and if you want to get a sense of what it was like in Nazi Germany, you know, the Falada's famous book alone in Berlin, I mean, gives you that mood, that feeling of, of, of what it was like to be mass man. So the, the, the onslaught took the form of a permanently organised, so dynamic assault on the boundaries and the autonomous from state authority, self-determined spheres in which individuals differentiate themselves to pursue interests, including, and really importantly, including hitherto non-political areas of life, from the family to intimacy and science to arts 
um, and the literature. So, as I said earlier, the, the, the idea or, or germ of mass was present uh, and emerged in, in, in a, particularly the imperialist elites in the late 19th century as a reaction against uh, the modern world. And as John Carey notes in, in his book, Intellectuals and the Masses, he notes it as a, a linguistic device. Its function as a linguistic device is to eliminate the human status of the majority of people, to deprive them of those distinctive features that make users of the term in their own esteem Superior. So this dystopian view of an undifferentiated mass of individuals largely determined by irrational psychological drives already developed into a science of behavioural crowd psychology and advertising formed the existing basis, the germ of a totalitarian uh, uh, mission to build an alternative modernity based on a, a, new, kind of, uh, a new kind of individual. So in that sense, totalitarians took up or the appeal, the wider appeal of, of totalitarianism, both in its Stalinist form outside Russia, particularly in countries like Britain, was because it built on an already strong, even dominant tendency in the intelligentsia to recast society, to break down um, individuals and classes as a means um, to that end. So the totalitarian impulse was to obliterate the foundational basis, regarded by distaste by even its defenders like Schumpeter, of a liberal representative democratic politics to destroy the basis of class and, as we'll see, nation as well, which is not a structureless mass, but the self-articulation of interests organised by self-determining individuals who autonomously enter into alliances that differentiate um, uh, society and the world and territories through nations, etc. So... Arendt, with a nice insight into to masses, noted that masses are not held together by a consciousness of common interest, and they lack that specific class articulateness which is expressed in determined, limited, and obtainable uh, goals. And it's limited and ta- determined, limited, and obtainable goals. It's very important to hold that, that definition. So mass politics grew out of societies, fragmented highly atomised either by Stalin's counter-revolution or the chaos of, of war and almost civil war in Germany. So the competitive, sort of divisive, atomizing structures of capitalist and imperialist societies and the loneliness, if you like, um, of the individual had been held in check um, through uh, the membership of classes or through um, their membership of these differentiating, self-determining uh, uh, stratas. Alfred Rosenberg, the Nazi theorist and senior party official, puts it, the individualistic doctrine which teaches that the individual creature exists of himself has collapsed. So Arendt and other writers of the period, from Kersler to Orwell to Falada, and actually a lot of the, the sort of crowd psychology people note this sort of weakening of, of self-preservation, um, which again we'll come back to, particularly in layers of the intelligentsia, previously fought for freedom but sought to um, abdicate autonomy um, and, and just think of some of those sort of former uh, sort of Bolshevik, Bolshevik uh, militants and uh, we'll come to them shortly. So the chief characteristic of mass man, said Arendt, isn't brutality and backwardness but his isolation and lack of normal uh, social relationships. So individuals exercising um, autonomy, self-interest and freedom have a tendency to differentiate themselves. So they create spheres of life, 
distinction between public and private. And in many instances, particularly in areas of life that were not previously subject to political regulation, they're very important realms in which people sort of constitute or renew themselves. You know, they're a haven uh, they're a haven from the sort of sharp elbows of daily life. So the exercise of freedom creates new strata, new ties, new associations of people. It can be around religion, art, culture, elements of the imagination that take place for their own sake, chess playing, stamp collecting, with non-political rules and norms of equal importance to constituting the autonomous um, individual as the pursuit of conventional uh, material um, self-interest. Uh, really importantly, and this is really picked up in, in, in particularly in literature, um, because they were part, writers were part of the intelligentsia, the transmission belt for this assault on the ties of class, nation, art, family, was the intelligentsia, the educated uh, middle class on the whole um, through the party, whether it was the uh, National Socialist Party um, or, or Stalinized Communist parties. So the Nazis quickly adopting Stalin's model organised Germany at work or home around party front organisations married to German state structures such as the police, social workers and the medical profession. Now, atomization, the, the model the Nazis were following to create this mass, this undifferentiated mass in Soviet society came through the repeated, the use of repeated political purges and, and purges that would come before the murder, the liquidation of individuals or groups and always generated this quite dynamic and perpetual sense of insecurity and isolation. The arbitrariness or and even the wanton destruction of these purges that it for example crippled the Soviet Union uh, military in the run-up um, to the German invasion in 1941 was combined with astonishing violence. It was completely unchecked, um, deliberately brutal and entirely outside of any kind of judicial or public process. It was real fear. I mean, real. This was a real, um, a real thing. If you think you're afraid nowadays, um, and I think Arendt again says it best. Although you know, read Vasily Grossman's *Life and Fate*, which is one of the best novels of the 20th century, set in uh, totalitarian uh, Russia. Many of Victor Serge's novels, uh, *Curseless Darkness at Noon*, and of course Orwell's absolutely brilliant *1984* that paint this picture. So I'll just quote it at length, because I think she just, she just gets it absolutely right. So in order to destroy all social and family ties, the purges are conducted in such a way to threaten with the same fate the defendant and all his ordinary relations, from mere acquaintances up to his closest friends and relatives. The consequences of a simple, ingenious device of guilt by association is that as soon as a man is accused, his former friends are transformed immediately into his bitterest enemies. In order to save their own skins, they volunteer information and rush in with denunciations to corroborate the non-existent evidence against him. This, obviously, is the only way to prove their own trustworthiness. Retrospectively, they will try and prove that their acquaintance or friendship with the accused was only a pretext for spying on him and revealing him as a saboteur, a Trotskyite, a foreign spy, or a fascist, and you can just adjust the epithets the other way around for the Nazis. So merit is then gauged by the number of your denunciations of close comrades, even if they're not acted on. It is obvious that the most elementary caution demands that one avoid all intimate contacts, if possible, not in order to prevent discovery of one's secret's thoughts, but rather to eliminate, 
in the almost certain case of future trouble, all persons who might not only have an ordinary cheap interest in your denunciation, but an irresistible need to bring about your ruin simply because they are in danger of their own lives. So in the last analysis, it has been through the development of this device to its farthest and most fantastic extreme that the Soviet rulers have succeeded in creating this an atomised and individualised society, the like of which we've never seen before and which events or catastrophes alone could hardly brought about. And then you transfer that into the German situation. So by the end of, uh, by that high point, the beginning of the Second World War, the Nazis controlled Berlin with actually less police than they'd had at the beginning of the... Not because of the police, we were off doing other stuff, liquidating people in Eastern Europe. But, so this was a very, very... It worked. It worked as a model. And most, I suppose, distressing was the embrace of this, uh, particularly by Bolsheviks, of this horrible, abasing, degrading, destructive um, environment. So men and women who'd once rebelled, led revolutions, strikes, written books, um, and had often remained steadfast in the face of conventional tyranny. I mean, they literally um, abased themselves. So Rubishoff's diary... In Kersler's Darkness, uh, Noon expresses this sort of horrible destination for millions of progressives and militants who fought for freedom but ended up embracing ignominy um, before death. So he writes in his di- fictional diary, this old Bolshevik, we admitted no private sphere, not even inside a man's skull. Um, as the only moral criterion which we recognise is that of social utility, the public disavowal of one's conviction in order to remain in the party ranks, is obviously more honourable than the quixotism of carrying on a hopeless struggle. Questions of personal pride, prejudices such as exist elsewhere against certain forms of self-abasement, personal feelings of tiredness, disgust and shame are to be cut off um, root um, at branch. So you go from the militant, uh, the militant heroism of class struggle to this you know, abasement, I mean, the, the lowest, um, the lowest um, you can go. And really, uh, to conclude, I want to very, very briefly look at how the Nazis and the Bolsheviks abandoned any definite um, aims. So the Nazis abandoned the idea of the salvation of the German nation um, and the Bolsheviks, the Stalinized Bolsheviks, um, abandoned um, any programme related to working class power for very ill-defined, ahistorical millennial um, objectives that were not linked to the past or present um, in terms of the reality of, of, of any experience. So the war to atomise society into a mass meant that both the Stalinists and the Nazis abandoned political programmes, economic efficacy, um, or even uh, uh, recognition of natural laws. And if you look at some of the devastation unleashed in the sort of 2 plus 2 equals 5 world of Soviet production... Or, or the disorganisation of Germany's war effort at key moments by the resources put into the Holocaust. Of course, you can see that sort of um, uh, slipping the leash of, uh, of reality. So most significantly, it meant that the Nazis abandoned uh, the idea of the German nation as it actually existed or was constituted, and the Stalinists, using formulations already developed by the Bolshevik dictatorship and people such as Trotsky moved away from a programme of working-class power or socialism to channelling a power of history um, that existed and worked itself out independently of existing human beings. So one of the, I found this absolutely fascinating aspect um, of the Nazis was once they assumed powers, their increasingly anti-German 
uh, dynamic in the sense of tearing down and abandoning a concept of a nation or national mission that applied to any past or present reality of German people. So the original idea of Volksgemeinschaft or, or sort of people's community, German people's community, obviously, was quickly overtaken by an open contempt for Germans once the Nazis were in power. So Hitler very on made the point that Nazism would transcend the narrow moder- limits of modern nationalism. 1923, said the German people consists for one third of heroes, for another third of cowards, while the rest are traitors. Goebbels asked in 1934, who are the people to criticise? Party members? No. The rest of the German people? They should consider themselves lucky to be alive. In 1943, obviously things weren't going well anyway, instructions from the SS headquarters in Berlin forbid or forbade the use of, nation, the, use of the word nation in any uh, National Socialist documents. The link between the nation as a community of living individuals with a past and present was dismissed. So Himmler would repeatedly insist that he and the SS worked with a future that began not in years, but in millennia. It was measured not in years, but in millennia. Really importantly, in Nazi Germany, anti-Semitism was not merely the persecution and later extermination of Jews, but was used as a solvent to break down German society, class and rank, down into mass, particularly for bourgeoisie. So the whole point was every citizen, every German, had to prove they weren't a Jew. The definitions would be constantly changed, sometimes following secret degrees. So you'd move house, you'd have to get a new residence permit, and you discovered that your old bit of paper saying that you're an heir and no longer applied, you had to go back and work out more distantly, you know, looking at your grandmothers. Um, So no one could be sure from one year to the next whether or not they would be found um, to be Jewish. It was so arbitrary in the higher ranks of the SS, Himmler's scientific approach was to just look at a photograph. If he liked them, they were in their air, and if he didn't, uh, well, they were, they, they were, they were subhuman. <clears throat> um, so again, it's look, looking at Hitler's plans for Germany after the war, which is in various directives and speeches. So it wasn't only the Jews and inferior peoples, such as the Slavs that were to be exterminated, to preserve and make room for the air and race, which isn't at all the same as for Volksgemeinschaft, but many Germans too were going to be targeted um, as part of a much broader, quote, negative population uh, policy. And as Himmler always emphasised, in this process of selection, there can never be a a standstill. So basically the Germans were going to move on to isolate and liquidate liquidate all families with cases of heart or, or, or uh, or lung disease. So to obliterate the autonomous individual in Germany, particularly as a national socialist movement, the Nazis had to attack the idea of the nation because it is too historically bound up or contaminated, in their view, with the idea of the self-determination of a differentiation made by a community of individuals working out their interests um, on a territory. And similarly, this really is the end, Stalin, while dissolving Lenin's attempts to differentiate the mass of of, of Russian uh, society by fostering national um, and class uh, differences to get a leverage, if you like, had to drop any semblance of previous Bolshevik uh, programmes. Instead, he had no programme... Uh, at all, um, with the argument ready to hand from the old guard um, that his new order was channeling historical forces that act above, beyond and behind the backs um, of, 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 of socialist programmes 
morality or autonomy. We argued, uh, Trotsky, and he was talking about the Bolsheviks, including the Stalinists, learned the rhythm of history, learned, it seems, and to a certain degree successfully, how to subordinate their, our subjective plans and programmes to this objective rhythm. They learn not to fall into despair over the fact that the laws of history do not depend upon their individual tastes and are not subordinated um, to their own uh, moral criteria. People dance to the tune of history that's playing them uh, like a, a, a fiddle. So finally, the, the totalitarian moment or impulse wasn't merely an exercise in traditional tyranny or authoritarianism, but sought to break down these relationships to assault sovereignty and independence at the level of the nation, class and the um, individual. And by trying to destroy these boundaries of freedom, they were essentially attacking what makes us human. So our self-determined differentiation um, from everyone else as autonomous um, individuals is very much part of that project of being human. Thank you very much. Brilliant.